Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about a subject that, unfortunately, far, far too many of us know firsthand. I'm talking about those who've been hurt by the church. It is it's seriously no exaggeration to say that at least once a week, I either meet with somebody or I have a conversation or receive an email from someone who shares with me their experience of being hurt by the church. And so to that extent, I want to dedicate an entire episode of the podcast to it and share out of my own experience what I've learned, what I'm learning, and what I've gleaned uh, through my own experience and through those who've been hurt by the church. Uh, Before we get to that, however, I have a couple of things that I want to share with you. First, the Blueprint Retreat. It's something that's been on my mind for a while now, and it's finally happening. Uh, And the reason that I'm launching this is because I'm having more conversations than ever with people who've left their spiritual home, people who are filled with questions and doubts and skepticism and curiosity, people who've let go of the answers they've been given, but something within suggests there is more to be discovered. And so if you are in this place, chances are you may feel isolated, you might feel alone because of the questions and the doubts and the skepticism, but the good news is this, you're not alone. There's so many people in this place, and the Blueprint Retreat is a chance to see that we are not alone. It's a time to come together and encounter fellow sojourners, to hit pause on our normal pace of life, to enjoy the beauty of the mountains and imagine what a renewed and vibrant faith could look like, and consider what it might look like to begin the work of constructing something together and sketch a faith for the next season of our lives with the hopes that all of this might lead us to build something new. And so the retreat is the second weekend of November uh, in 2019. We're going to have it in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado, one of my favorite places in the Front Range. It's all-inclusive, so uh, a ticket uh, covers all your meals, all your snacks, the accommodations, beer and wine. Everything is included, and uh, you can learn more about the retreat and all the other details on my website, at michael-hidalgo.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-D-A-L-G-O.com. There's a link at the top of the page that says Blueprint Retreat. You can find everything you need there. Space is limited. We're more than half full already, um, so we would love to have you join with us. Second thing I want to share with you is that in October 2019, the Evolving Faith Conference will be here in Denver, Colorado. And I know uh, people from around the country are making the trip for this, and I'm excited to share that I, along with my friend Jasper Peters, Paula Williams, and Jenny Morgan, and others will be doing the Evolving Faith pre-conference on Thursday, October 3rd. Uh, The details will be up on their website soon. It's at evolvingfaithconference.com, and I cannot wait for this, and I hope that you can join us at the Evolving Faith Conference October 3, 4, and 5 here in Denver. I think that's it as far as detail goes, so let's jump in. The first thing I want to say this, you might have heard right at the top of the episode, like, wait, you're going to talk about being hurt by the church? Um, like, why you? You're a pastor. Like, you're an official representative of the church, and is it possible that you're only going to defend the church or make excuses for all the crap the church has shoveled on people over the years? And I want to say this. If that's anywhere in your mind, let me begin by saying, first, yes, yes, you should be asking this question. I totally understand, because pastors of which I am one, in particular, have long been at the forefront of wounding people uh, through careless words, harmful attitudes, thoughtless actions. I recognize I am in a role that is responsible for dealing a lot of pain to a lot of people. And by the way, I'm not immune to this. So, so don't see me, hear me sitting somewhere else like, oh, all those other pastors. Um, All of us are capable of this. And so I get it. I get it. I get it. 
uh, when, when you're curious about this? Like, why, why you? Why, of all people, would you be talking about this? Uh, which leads me to the second thing I want to say is that today, uh, what I want to do is share my story of my getting torched and wounded by the church, to share that there was a long season, even after I had worked for as a pastor for more than five years, there was a season where I was certain I would never walk through the doors of a church building ever again, let alone work for a church or ever preach a sermon at a church again. And I want to start here uh, because this subject hits me deeply when I'm in conversation with other people precisely because I have been there and it's tragic and awful and hurtful on so many levels. Uh, Third, let me say this. This is not my attempt to, uh, to get you back to the church. And so if you're listening and you've been hurt or you're current uh, by the church and you've currently chosen not to connect with the church or attend a church, um, this is not me trying to say, like, you need to go back. Um, My sole hope on this podcast is to share with you what I learned through my own pain and my own wounding, uh, what I'm continuing to learn as I spend time with other people, and uh, my, my only hope is that we could all be a little bit more whole and continue a little bit more toward healing. Remember, we talk a lot about taking our next steps on this podcast. My, my hope is that this will be just another step in your continued healing. And so with this in mind, um, I'm not wanting to trash the church on this episode. Um, in some ways, I'm like, I'm not sure that I have to. The church has done her share of terrible things, Uh, so I'm not trying to add to that. I'm only sharing what I want to share on this episode to point out um, what I've learned in leaving the church and in returning to it, and what I've learned through so many who have gone through their own process and and what they've taught me. So with all of that said, I guess that's my disclaimer or my caveat to the entire episode. Uh, Let me tell you my story. And then uh, once I'm done telling my story, we'll kind of go through it, and I'll try to point out some of the lessons that uh, are contained in this whole thing. So years ago, uh, once upon a time, um, I, along with several others, decided to launch a new church. We, We called it Planting a Church, and I had all sorts of ideas about what the church could become, how we could operate in a healthy way. And I would even use the phrase, how it wasn't going to be like other churches. Which, by the way, let me say this. Uh, If you hear someone say, yeah, we're starting a church, it's not going to be like other churches. Right away, um, they are wrong. And I was wrong when I said that. Because it's still a church. So don't tell me what you're not going to be like. Tell (laughs) Tell me what you have to uniquely offer the world. Um, because if you're a church, you're just that alone means you're going to be like other churches. But I digress. Um, in launching this church, I was one of two pastors leading this thing, and we launched, and by all measurements, we were a success. People were showing up. People were finding transformation. Um, people were talking about us around town, about this new church. It was an experience that was vibrant, it was exciting, and every day and with every step I took, I recognized this was a thrilling experience. And one of the things that I longed for in this uh, was that we would be a place where people didn't have to act like they had it all together. A place where you, you know, had to come and you had to hide your imperfections. Like, you could talk about the acceptable imperfections, but like the the real ones that no one wants to talk about, like you have to hide those. I didn't want to be that place. I didn't want a place where you had to hide your wounds. I didn't want a place where you felt like you couldn't express doubt and skepticism. I didn't want to be a place where you couldn't ask the hard questions that challenged the way that we had always believed and thought. Rather, I wanted to be a place where we could bring our full selves, all of our glory and all of our messiness, a place where we could express cynicism, if that's how we were feeling, a place where we could talk about our doubt, a place where we could ask our questions. In my mind, and by the way, I still believe this, you cannot create this kind of environment if you are not willing to live this way. 
You cannot create an environment where people can bring their whole selves if you are not willing to bring your whole self. You cannot create an environment where doubt and questions are welcomed as like an old friend if you are not willing to express your doubt and your questions. And if you try to do that, it may take a while, but people will eventually call BS. Somehow there's like this radar that people have where they can sniff out the hypocrisy and they will figure out one way or another the pastor is counterfeit. So in believing that we had to live this if we wanted to see it, I, in the role that I was playing in this uh, church that we launched, I expressed questions about like everything, about God, about the Bible, the Trinity, Jesus, salvation, the resurrection, sin, heaven, hell. I mean, you know, like all the things that aren't a big deal in the church. And I want to say this. One of the things that I'm aware of is I didn't always ask these questions or raise these challenges in the most helpful ways. Uh, But I did want to be in a place, and I pushed to be in a place, where we could actually talk about these things rather than cut off the conversation about them by just offering up the same old answers. And whenever I was met with the same old answers, I would just like push right through those and keep going and keep going. And in all of this, I blindly believed that the co-pastor I planted with and others who joined the church wanted this kind of thing and were willing to think through these questions and willing to put themselves forward. And it turns out not everyone agreed with my mindset. And there was a few, and I, and I emphasize a few, uh, who did all they could to ensure I would not be a pastor at the church that I launched for very long. And I was admittedly oblivious to the tension rising amidst the leadership. I was unaware of the closed door conversations that were happening, conversations about me, which is why they were closed doors, and uh, the discussions on how they could sever ties with me and how quickly they could make this happen. I was ignorant to the fact that that people that my wife and I had long known, people that we had loved and trusted, uh, were not only being told things about me that were flat out lies, but that those people that we had long known and loved and trusted chose to believe those flat-out lies without ever coming to us and asking if they were true. And uh, one early morning, uh, barely eight months after launching the church, I was told that we had an unplanned meeting, meeting, and the meeting was supposed to be about training small group leaders because we had far more people sign up for small groups than we anticipated. So we had to figure out, like, well, how are we going to get enough leaders to lead these small groups? So we had to have this meeting. So I showed up to the meeting thinking, like, all ready to talk about kind of our plan, what we were going to do. We started the meeting like we always did with uh, a time of uh, prayer and reflection. And as soon as, like, we said amen, I was told I would not be at the meeting long and I would not need my computer. And one person seated at the head of the table, this was a fellow who used to refer to me as his other son. Like, he would introduce his two sons and be like, this is my other son. Michael, he uh, had a manila envelope, and he pulled out some papers, and without looking at me one time, began reading this legal document in which I was referred to only as Hidalgo. Not Michael, (laughs) just Hidalgo. And what made it worse, by the way, is I could see it, and my name was always in capital letters. So it was like my last name was being shouted somehow. And uh, over the next 10 minutes, all the secrets, all the lies, the misinformation, the mischaracterization, and the endless rumors, all of those like fell into my lap. And I was told I had to resign effective immediately if I wanted to get any severance at all, which included, by the way, my insurance. And if I said no to resigning, if I chose not to resign, then I would be fired on the spot and my insurance and my paycheck would would end immediately. And so the reason stated by the person in the room reading the document uh, for, for all of this, my being told I had to resign or you know the other option being fired, was that I had a spiritual problem. That was it. There was no further elaboration. It was just that I had a spiritual problem. And at this point, uh, it's important to note, my wife was pregnant with our second child, and the due date was about three and a half months out from this moment where I'm sitting Uh, in this conference room early in the morning in December. And I was told 
that uh, the, the severance I would get, including insurance, would be four months. So in that moment, while rage and anger was spilling out of every part of my being, there was also this side of me that was like very calm, thinking about, like thinking through all the implications of this. And all I could think about was ensuring that my wife and my baby would receive the needed care um, that would be offered through insurance. So I signed the papers, which means I resigned on the spot. Um, and here's, by the way, here's something that's really funny looking back. Um, I left the conference room and walked into my office. And I mean, just totally disoriented, side, like sideswipe, broadsided is more like it by what just happened. Cannot even fathom that these people did this to me. And months before, there was somebody who worked for Herman Miller, which makes really nice office furniture and other kinds of furniture. And this person who worked for Herman Miller gave me like their flagship office chair, like this really, really nice chair. It's called the Herman Miller Aeron chair. And so when I walked into my office and put my computer down, I'm putting my jacket on and I looked at my chair and thought, I can't, I cannot trust these people. So I'm leaving our offices that morning when it's still like dark out, going down the stairs, carrying nothing but my office chair, just clank, clank, I mean, I felt like Steve Martin in The Jerk. Like, I don't need you, I don't need anybody. All I need is this chair. And when we had some friends come over later that day when they had heard what happened, and I'm sitting in the office chair, and he was like, wait, wait, why do you have that chair? And I was like, because I didn't trust them with the chair. And we just found ourselves laughing, I think, because if not, we were crying. And by the way, as I record this podcast, I am currently sitting in that chair. I, I still have this more than a decade later, almost 15 years later, I still have that chair. So it was worth it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I got home with my chair that cold, cloudy December morning before 7.45 a.m. So this tells you how early the meeting was. And when I walked through the door, my wife was holding our son, who wasn't even yet two years old, and she was confused as to why I was home. And uh, I told her, and there was this, I, I can't even describe like the paralysis that came over us, but we ended up, we were sitting on the white tile floor of our kitchen, uh, weeping. And our son, was kind of like crawling between us with his bottle and was not like hitting us, more like kind of tapping our arm and was saying, uh, no cry, no cry. Um, and it, it, it felt, I don't even know how long we sat there, but it felt like it was days. Um, and, and here's the thing, we got a knock on the door uh, a couple hours later and there was a courier who had the manila envelope that the legal papers had been in, and he wanted to get me my copy that had the signatures of the people who had done this to me and me, so that I knew that all of this was legally binding. That was the only follow-up I ever had to this whole ordeal, with the exception of one phone call that I got from my co-pastor, who called to ask, if the chair actually belonged to me. <laughs> like, seriously, the one phone call was, hey, by the way, was that your chair? And uh, by, I can't fault them because if someone took out a chair that was that nice for my office space, I would want to make sure um, that it belonged to the person who took it. But this is the only follow-up, a courier with legal documents. And, oh, hey, by the way, was that your chair? And so you can imagine... In the months that followed, there was all like just thousands and millions of emotions. Um, people called asking us what happened. Uh, some people wanted justice on our behalf. And I will say this, we found out overnight who our real friends were because there was people who once like were emailing, like wanting to have lunch with me, take me out for coffee, go play golf with me, whatever it was. These were people who wouldn't even look me in the eye. Like, we would be out at a grocery store, and we'd see people who used to go to our church, and these brothers and sisters would pretend like they didn't see me. Or when they ran into me in public, it was this really awkward um, conversation where they wouldn't bring up the church, and it was like, 
They were doing everything they could just to get away. And in this time, uh, I went months without uttering one single word to God. Uh, And by the way, a friend of mine told me later that my silence was in itself its own kind of prayer. So let me just stop right there and say this. If If you're listening and you're going through something and you can't bring yourself to pray, you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge a God who would allow this to happen in your life, your silence, your ache, your tears, your pain, your wounds, all of those things, all of those things are their own kind of prayer. This is where I was. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to acknowledge the divine. Uh, church for me was absolutely out. I was done forever. Uh, screw the whole thing. Um, there was nothing in my mind that could ever get me to go back to it. Like no thing ever would get me to go back to that. I was certain. Uh, I was really depressed in this season. It, was, it didn't help that it was winter in Michigan, which is like the most miserable, m- miserable experience anyone can have. Like when people say the phrase like hell has frozen over, I'm like, yeah, I know. It happens every December, January, February in, in Michigan. There's no sun, it's clouds, it's freezing cold. And I fell into this depression. I actually had a friend named Bill who would call me every day just to get me out of bed. He would call me at like eight o'clock and be like, you better be out of bed. Because even just getting out of bed felt like it was too much. It was a sad, troubling season for my wife and me. Spring came uh, just a few months later. Our daughter was born, and uh, I started working at a film school. Uh, But church, by the way, still way out there. We had fewer friends than ever before. And by that, I mean there were fewer people looking me up to hang out. But the relationships we experienced were deeper than ever And in so many ways, it felt like we were starting totally and completely over. One night, um, as it grew warmer, our daughter was having trouble going to sleep. And so my wife went to bed. I stayed up with our daughter. Finally, she fell asleep. And our son was asleep. And my wife was asleep. And I was like, "Okay, I need to get out and go for a drive. And this is something that I often did uh, years ago when I needed to think and process. I would just go for a drive. And that night was a super clear night, like no clouds, no moon. It was really dark. And I won out, uh, drove out like way beyond the streetlights into like the farm country of West Michigan. And I came to a stop sign and I had the sunroof open. And I, at the stop sign, I remember not being in a hurry. And I looked up and I could see the stars and it felt like the stars were like super close that kind of night, that kind of dark. And uh, I remember just the silence and the darkness and the stars all in this moment. And while looking up at the stars, I prayed the first prayer I had prayed in months. And the prayer was, what the F are you doing to me? And by the way, I screamed it, and I didn't say F. (laughs) I'm just saying that because this is a clean podcast according to iTunes standards. What the F are you doing to me? I screamed it. And... The tears came. Uh, it was like the ugly cry. Um, just came, in, like the pain in, in, this, in this moment became more deep and more real than it had in a long, long time. It was the first time I acknowledged God in months. And that moment at the stop sign on that clear, dark night in West Michigan, way out beyond the streetlights, it was the start of something. Something in me chose to work toward forgiving the people that had done this to me because I had known too many people who bottled up unforgiveness, and these were miserable and angry people. Uh, I started going to therapy. I should say I went back to therapy. Uh, then a friend called me in, in this season after like a few weeks. A friend called me for lunch, and this friend of mine was a pastor. And I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. I'll have lunch. And um, he listened to my story. And he cried. He didn't offer any advice. He didn't try to get me back. He was just listened and he cried. And he was unbelievably sincere. And as kind and sincere as he was, I didn't trust him. He was a pastor. Didn't trust him at all. He was one of them. He called again. We had another lunch, more listening. I still didn't trust him. He called again. This time he invited me to a golf scramble. And I was like, free golf? Of course, yeah. I'll always 
play free golf. And, and at this golf scramble, what he was not clear about is it was a golf scramble that was designed to honor pastors. So every foursome had one pastor in the group. In my group, I was the pastor. Like he totally suckered me into this thing. And so when they're introducing every group at the lunch before the outing, they're introducing like, here's like, you know, Tim and Ron and John and pastor so-and-so. And so they come to my group and they introduce the three other people. And then they're like, and pastor Michael Hidalgo. And I'm like, are you, are you freaking kidding? I'm not a pastor. I haven't been a pastor in like in a long time. Why are you, why are you doing this to me? And then we had a lunch uh, a while later and he brought up my being introduced as pastor Michael. And he said, Hey, I, I have to be honest with you. I really like the sound of that. And I was like, well, what do you mean you like the sound of it? He's like, man, I really think you still have something to offer the church. And this was like his, the first time he brought this up after we had been together for months. And he said, I'd love for you to come and preach at our church again, because I had spoken there as a guest before. And I said, no, not going to do that. And he kind of insisted on it. Then he told me um, what they would pay me to preach at the church. And at this point, we weren't making much money. And I was like, well, I'll show up for the cash. <laughs> uh, truth be told, it was like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll do it for the cash. And something in me decided if I'm going to preach there, I-, I should show up for at least one, one of their Sunday morning worship services before I do. And uh, my wife and I drove to their church building. We purposely arrived late because I didn't want to talk to anybody because people there, uh, because I had preached there before, people knew who I was. And we slipped in to the very back of the room, uh, right, like the service had begun. My, we had checked my son in the nursery. We had our newborn daughter in a car seat carrier. And uh, we, just as we sat down, the worship leader invited everyone to stand so that we could sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. <laughs> and I was like, is this, a, is this a joke? Great is who's faithful? That, I mean, it was just such a... Such a disorienting deal. And uh, so I did preach. And then after I was done preaching, there was this woman who was like this sage that was a part of this community. And she came up to me and she said, I've heard you preach a lot over the years, but something in you is more beautiful than it's ever been. And I was like, oh, okay. And she said, you've been broken and and it's beautiful. I didn't know what to do with that. I'm... I don't know that I'll ever be able to know what to do with that because it was something so profound in the way that she said it. And uh, a short, short, or a long story made short, um, that initial time preaching led to an interview with the elder team at that particular church. And the interview went something like this, hey, tell us your story. And my wife and I told them the story. There was not one dry eye uh, around the table. Everyone was in tears by the time it was done. And the lead elder of that church, a guy named Doug, said, we believe you still have something to offer the church, and we want to invite you to serve at our church and promise you that what you just experienced will not happen here, uh, and we will pay you to heal. Literally, these are his words. We will pay you to heal. And I still didn't trust anybody, by the way, I should say that. Um, But my wife and I, after uh, a lot of conversation, uh, a lot of conversation with friends, chose to jump in, and we spent two years at that church. And that church was central to my healing. And it was the church that I actually left so that I could take the role here in Denver at Denver Community Church. They actually, when we left that church, they commissioned us, like, they prayed over us. They sent us. Um, we've, we've maintained an unbelievable relationship all these years later. So that's, that's like a really abbreviated version of the story, even though it's like 20, 20 minutes long. Um, there's so many more layers and details and all sorts of other things. But what, what I want to do is I want to kind of walk backward through the story, so kind of start where I ended and just share with you some of the lessons that I've learned in all of this, starting at the end. And so here we go. The first lesson is this. 
Uh, my friend Jim, the pastor friend who took me to lunch all those times that I didn't trust, and the church that picked my wife and I up and bandaged our wounds and took a chance and loved us back to health. Um, that story is beautiful. As a matter of fact, to this day now, when I tell the story of my wife and I going through what we went through, the part that makes me cry is talking about the church that brought us healing. Not the church that wounded us, but the church that brought us healing, because it's a testament to what the church at her best is capable of. And one of the things I learned was having these two experiences back-to-back, getting worked over and torched by a church and getting picked up and healed by a church. Um, Having those two experiences back-to-back taught me why being hurt by the church is so painful. And I think it's because something in us knows or at least wants to believe that the church can be the sort of place that picks up the wounded and nurses them back to health. So when it's not, it, it's, it hurts that much worse. It's, it's not just like that someone hurts us, it's the death of some sort of dream or it's the end of some sort of innocence. Uh, I've described it to people like if, if someone took a coffee cup out of a Denny's and walked out to the parking lot and smashed it, you might be like, well, what's that all about? But you wouldn't lament the fact that they just broke a coffee cup from Denny's. Who cares? There's probably a million others somewhere else. But if somebody took like a priceless crystal chalice or wine glass that was worth thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars, and they took that out to a parking lot and they smashed it with like no concern for its value, you'd be like, what are you doing? You, you wouldn't just think maybe something's wrong with the person, you'd also be concerned about what was just broken. And I think this, is, this explains a little bit what I'm getting at, that the church has the power to be this crystal chalice. And so when the church acts in a way that's messed up, broken, backwards, sideways, something in us breaks watching it. Because we realize like this is not how it's supposed to be. Because when something beautiful behaves so ugly, it's not only hurtful, it's disappointing, and even more, it's disorienting. I mean, we're told the church is supposed to resemble Jesus. So when we're hurt by this institution, it's like all kinds of WTF-ness welling up. Like, what, what is going on? But I can say this. To this day, I would crawl on my hands and knees from Denver to Michigan for anybody who was in the church that nursed us back to health at that time. And I would do anything for any of them. And I would crawl all 1,100 miles with joy that I get to go and serve them. And even now, more than a decade later, uh, I still count many of them as my friends because these are people who saw us at our worst, who saw my lack of trust, who saw my gaping wounds, and they believed in us seeing in us what we could not see in ourselves. And what's interesting is to this day, I talk about this group of people all the time as an example of what the church is capable of. I quote my friend Jim all the time with all the things he taught me uh, nonstop. And, And what about the church that fired me? I honestly rarely ever talk about them. And part of it is and this sounds really mean, but I'm not trying to be mean. I'm like, they don't deserve the airtime. <laughs> they just don't. And often we want to talk about the messy things. I mean, like if there's an accident on the other side of the highway, it causes a backup on the side of the highway where there's no accident. Why? Because we're like drawn to the drama, drawn to the mess. But what I'm interested in is the beauty of what could be. And so when I talk more about this church that that just did the unthinkable for my wife and I, two years of payment to heal, asking very little of us. Like that, that's a story. A church that screws over a pastor, man, like, yeah, let's keep moving on. It's interesting, when we went through the LGBTQ process inclusion here at Denver Community Church, of course we got static and hate mail and everything else. And I get asked about that all the time. People will be like, so did did you get the hate mail? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course we did. And I'm not going to talk about that because it's nothing new and it's not interesting. What I will talk about is I literally received thousands of pieces of communication. I received one letter from a group of women who are moms to LGBTQ kids signed by over 700 people. (laughs) 
one letter signed by over 700 people. I think that's what we should talk about. Now, this doesn't mean you ignore the pain, but it means that you platform the things that are beautiful and true and good, that things that, that are trustworthy. And I, I point this out because the stories we tell are the realities we make. And there are far too many stories about all of the crap that the church has shoveled on people. But what I'm learning is there are better stories to be told. The second lesson, people and churches. Now, I mentioned many people trashed us in this season, and I could tell you stories that would just make your stomach turn. Here's one. Here's one. Even though I said, by the way, we shouldn't give airtime to this, just, just give you an example of where we were at. There was one person that came to meet with me uh, acting like he really cared about what was going on. And then I found out he did this kind of like as a reconnaissance effort so that he could go back and tell people all the stuff that I was thinking and doing. I mean, just complete, like, it was like a double betrayal. It was like betraying someone who had been betrayed. And when I found out about this, I called a friend of mine and said, I'm going to go over to so-and-so's house, and I know where he lives, and I know that he's home, and I'm going to physically assault him. And... Uh, I'm going to do that in 20 minutes. And so I'm going to call you back in 15 minutes, and you need to tell me why I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Truthfully. And he told me, he said, you were so calm but so angry, I knew that you meant it. And I was like, well, yeah, of course I meant it. So I went and walked, went, went for a walk in my neighborhood. It was freezing cold winter. I, I only had a T-shirt on. And my wife, when I came back, was like freaking out because she said to me, you were so articulate and so deeply angry. It was really <laughs> concerning. Oh, man. Oh, this, this is what it was like. So we had all sorts of people that trashed us, people that ghosted us and everything else. And this is what I've learned. When we are in a tribe and the tribal leaders toss someone out, it takes wisdom and compassion and unbelievable courage to walk away from the tribe and care for the well-being of the person who was tossed. And looking back, what's most surprising to me are not the people who like betrayed those who had been betrayed and the people who ghosted us and everything. What's surprising are the people who stuck with us, not the people who ignored us. Now, it, it didn't make it less hurtful uh, that people ignored us. It didn't heal the pain immediately that these people just saw that we got thrown out and did nothing. But it seems to be like the worst part of human nature. And in our case, there were people who had invested in this church. And so for whatever reason, they chose to stick with the larger group. Now, is it disturbing? Of course it is disturbing. But here's what I've taken from that. When, first, whenever I hear about someone getting kicked to the curb by a particular tribe, I will always reach out to that person. Always reach out to that person. Uh, I don't spend time with them to get all the gory details. But I always come alongside of them simply to tell them they are not alone. I don't care if they're right. I don't care if they're wrong. I'm just there to say, hey, you're not alone. I'm here for you. I'm cheering you on. And the second thing is this. I've learned that even those who stick with the group, and this might be hard to believe, I've learned they're not bad people. It's really easy to demonize everybody and paint everyone with a broad brushstroke. But what I've realized, and it took me a long time to believe, is these are not bad people. It's true. It's really, really true. They're responding to something almost outside of themselves. And I had to do a lot of work to believe the best about those who remained at that church that, that tossed me out on my ear. Uh, the third thing I would say is this, and I mentioned this earlier, you learn really quickly who your friends are. Those closest to me didn't just stick with me, but they committed to the best for me. And here's what I mean. I had people who wanted to sit with me to figure out how they could destroy the people who did this. And while they wanted to destroy the people who did this on my behalf, and it was kind of their way of caring for me, it, in the end of the day, they kind of overlooked me. Like, it would have been really great to watch somebody go and destroy the people who did this to me. It would have, like, temporarily, it would have been really satisfying. But ultimately, they weren't there for me. They were there for some, like, vendetta. The people that I learned who are my friends, these are people who encourage me to be my best self. These are people who nudged me when I needed to be moved along. People who would sit with me when I just needed to sit. 
people who loved me, people who cried with me, people who laughed with me, um, never, never really wanting all the details, but in the moments that I wanted to share details, they would listen, and they would listen without judgment. And uh, the, the, the best people in all of this saw my wife. They saw, let me use that word again, they saw us. They saw my wife. They saw my son. They saw my daughter. They saw me. And they reminded us they loved and they believed in what they saw. And again, we can spend all of our time talking about all the people who ghosted us. But I'm here today because of the people who invested in us, not because of all the people who ghosted us. Which brings me to the third lesson, and maybe the most important, which also involves people in the church. Uh, in all of this, obviously, there's people involved, and you're like, well, yeah, of course there is. Your point is, and, and here's my point. Saying, I've been hurt by the church, allows the church to remain impersonal, nameless, and faceless. But here's the thing. Impersonal, nameless, and faceless entities cannot and do not possess the power to hurt you the way a person with a name and a face can. The church, let me be clear on this, the church did not hurt me. A small group of people that my wife and I loved and trusted hurt us and betrayed us, and that small group of people were those associated with the church. And this is why it hurts so much, because you share something more than just friendship. You share a kinship. Uh, you share a, a love, a brotherhood, a sisterhood within this kingdom-minded thing that we call the church. That's why it hurts so much. It reminds me of Psalm 55. The psalmist writes these words. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide, but it is you, a person like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. Oh, oh my goodness, those words kept me company for so long through this process because it's those that we love and trust that hold the power to hurt us the most. It's those that we love and those that we trust, those that we believe in, those are the people. We give them power to hurt us deeply. And this is why we need to name those people. So if you say, I was hurt by the church, how do you begin naming the people that you've associated with the church or some sort of Christian ministry? How do you begin saying their names and then saying what it is that they have done? How do you journal about it? Maybe you need to speak to a counselor, speak to a confidant, speak to those who can hear this and hold it in a sacred way. And I say that this is important because spiritual abuse is real. Religious leaders wounding others consistently is a problem that has yet to be solved. Church folk behaving terribly and leaving destruction in their wake in the form of human beings is far too common. And so to make this all these wounds the, the, the product of a faceless, impersonal, nameless entity, it, it, it keeps it at arm's length. And I think, like for me, I did that for a long time, so I didn't have to deal with the fact that people that I loved and trusted were the ones who did this to me. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, in talking about forgiveness, says that forgiveness can only have its way when the truth is brought out into the light in named for what it is. We have to bring it out into the light. We have to name it for what it is. And then forgiveness can have her way. And forgiveness, by the way, that's the hardest thing in all of this. I talked about how in that moment, shouting through my sunroof, I was moved toward forgiveness. And this is, uh, this is one of the lessons. This is probably the hardest lesson that I want to share in this whole process. Uh, when I decided to work toward forgiving those who did this, I did not know what I was in for. It was a long, long journey, partially because there were many days in between when I didn't want to forgive. There were moments when I wanted to get even. I didn't want to forgive them, but, but this is what I've learned. If you don't forgive those who hurt you, they still control you. 
many people in this whole process, like they can't stand the controlling uh, pastors who, who've done this to them. But if you don't forgive them, they actually still control you. And you may actually end up becoming more like them than you realize down the road. You see, to forgive, it, as hard as it is, is to reclaim power. And by the way, I'm sure there are some of you listening who've had to forgive people for doing things to you way more awful than I experienced. And so when, when I'm talking about this, please don't hear it as like, you need to forgive. Like, no, 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 no. This is unbelievably difficult and sacred, but I believe it's necessary for us if we want to find liberation and if we want to reclaim power. There was one of the individuals that I went and met with after all of this happened. I pursued him because I wanted to tell him I forgave him. And there's power in those words because when you tell somebody, I forgive you, you're also accusing them of doing something because you don't forgive people for doing nothing. And so I went to him and I, I told him that I had forgiven him and worked through forgiving him. This was uh, months, maybe even years later, I can't remember. And I'll never forget, he said, I wish you said you hated me because it would be easier. This was his response to me when I said, I forgive you. I wish you hated me. It would be easier. You see, this is, this is the power that forgiveness has. This is the power that it gives to us and the liberation that it gives to us. But here's the thing. Forgiveness gets even harder when it's thrown back in your face because that's not the end of the story. I went to another individual who was responsible for this happening to me, and I told him that I forgave him. And this is the individual, by the way, he used to call me like his other son. And I said, if you had the chance to do this over again, knowing what you know now, would you still do it? And he looked me dead in the eye, and he said, yes, I would. You were an issue, and we dealt with you. I mean, after all of this, like more than a year later, he said, you were an issue. So I went from being a son to being an issue, which like now, like I felt like I had to, it was like back to square one with forgiveness. And there's words from a theologian named Miroslav Volf that kept me company and uh, offered a lot of, in a strange way, offered a lot of comfort in that season. And he said that when you give somebody the gift of forgiveness, and they throw it back in your face, in that moment, you stand in the company of the crucified Savior. It, it, it was this quote that helped me to see that in the forgiveness of God, there's also suffering that comes to the heart of God, and it is the worst. It's the worst. It was the worst feeling ever, and it's a process that takes days and weeks and months and years, um, but it's a process that we can keep moving and in the end, when you are able to offer forgiveness, when you're able to live fully in forgiveness, what you will realize is that you are free from the people that wanted to control you, that you now are able to look back and recognize they have nothing on you uh, and they never will have anything on you. And this is the last lesson. Don't waste this. I've learned over the years that those who I find the most compelling are those who've been wounded and are able to tell the story of how it has led them to better and healthier ways of seeing and living and moving in this world. You see, in the initial moments, in the initial months after all of this, I was an angry cuss. I mean, I, in those moments, you, sh you would not have wanted to cross me. And the pain ebbed and flowed actually for years after but ultimately, in the words of one friend who walked with me in that season, he would say to me over and over, let this brand you, let this shape you, let this impress itself in your heart so it will form you into someone better. And years later, here I sit in the chair that I took from my office recording a podcast about all of this. And what I know is this. One of the central reasons I'm a pastor today is precisely because of all the crap that has been dumped on me by people who've been associated with the church. Uh, and I have, with the help of friends, with the grace and love and mercy of the divine, lots of time, loads of counsel, endless, endless, endless people speaking into my life, uh, I've given as much as possible to helping others navigate these kind of wounds. 
Um, all because so much has been given to me to the extent I, I have like all these reserves that I'm able to give to others. And uh, I remind myself constantly why I became a pastor and why I returned to the church after a painful season. And it's this. Uh, the day I chose to be a pastor, which was way back like 1998, somewhere in there, um, I did so recognizing that those who had gone before me were those who had picked me up and bandaged my wounds, responded to my doubt with grace, loved me, cared for me, cheered for me, and gave me enough grace to heal. And the day I chose to be a pastor, I told myself, if I can help others find the same hope and joy and love and liberation and grace that I have been given, I will give my life to that and nothing else. And the wounds that I was given and the scars that I now bear through the experience of being wounded by people I loved and trusted that I associated with the church, those wounds and those scars have given to me greater compassion, greater empathy, greater wisdom and awareness and understanding that I would never have come to otherwise. In my prayer for all of us, my prayer for you if you are listening and you've been wounded by the church, is that no matter where you are in your process, maybe you're in a place where you, you were where I was, you will never go back to church again. I get it. I get it. I understand. Maybe you're in a place where you're just kind of kicking the tires again and there's this pastor that's calling you and you're going out to lunch with the pastor and thinking to yourself, I do not trust you. Wherever you are in that process, my prayer is that this would not, in the end, cause you to become bitter, but that in the days and weeks and months and years to come, you would find it has made you better. My prayer is that we would not allow our experiences, no matter how painful, that we would not allow those to be wasted, but that they would be used so that others might find their way. My prayer for all of us is that we would work together toward that end. And so, with that, let me say thank you for joining with us again. On our next episode, we are going to spend time with George McHale from Church Clarity, and I hope you will once again join with us. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.